this. And if you're in college or you went to college, you know when you wrote a paper, you had to have a thesis statement that really summed up the totality of what you were writing about. Someone could read the thesis and go, this is what this is about. Our thesis through this whole series has been this. Emotional, uh, emotion, emotional health and contemplative spirituality, when interwoven together, offer nothing short of a spiritual revolution transforming the hidden places deep beneath the surface of our lives. Emotional health and contemplative spirituality, when interwoven together, offer nothing short of a spiritual revolution transforming the hidden places deep beneath the surface of our lives. See, we can live surface lives. We can live our lives in such a way that, we, that people see only what we want them to see. And quite honestly, sometimes we only see of ourselves what we let ourselves see. And we avoid going deep. We avoid going to the places where uh, maybe things are painful or things are, are hard or we ignore our true self, who we really are. And so when we're out in public or at work or at church, uh, we put on a face. We have this persona, this facade that, that people see. And the, the picture is that of an, an iceberg where only 10% of what is, of its mass is seen above the water, the rest of it below the water. That in our relationship with God, in our spirituality, that God wants to take us below the surface to, and bring healing to the deep places of our lives. But it can only happen when we really embrace emotional health. It leads to transformation. God says to us through... Um, through the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, that his desire, his goal for our lives is that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. When, when we look at that, that logo and those two, those two parts coming together, the end game, the, the desired result is that you would look more like Jesus. And I'm not talking about right, that the, the painting with the, the long hair and the blue, because those are all really inaccurate anyway, as we're talking about. We're talking about the nature, the heart, the love that marked the life of Jesus Christ, that, G, that God wants to shape us and conform us to his image, to look like him, to live like he lived, to act like he acted, to move in the ways that, that he did. This morning is, is kind of a practical application of what we've been learning over these last few weeks. And so um, I'm going to have a couple of, couple of points here in a few minutes. We're going to be looking at uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan here in a few minutes as well. Um, but but something, something we need to know, and, and, and when I say this, you'll recognize maybe it's true and even in your own life. Is that, that so often we, have, we can have people who are into contemplative spirituality. They pray a lot. They read their Bibles a lot. They, they go to church a lot. They hear from God. But in the midst of all of that, they're emotionally maladjusted. That there are places of hurt emotionally and pain emotionally and, and a lack of mature, maturity emotionally that, that creates an imbalance between the spirituality and this emotional wholeness. On the other hand, you can have people that are involved in counseling and social work and, and, and are giving their lives to serve others, maybe being a part of 12-step programs or uh, counseling programs or psycho psychology programs. But without developing the contemplative spirituality side, again, there's an imbalance. That's not the whole picture. And so in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus paints a picture for us and, and really gives us uh, the theme for this morning of what it looks like for someone to be disconnected spiritually or have a disconnected spirituality and what it looks like for someone to have emotional health 
and move in such a way that, that there's actually a practical application of that health in the life of someone else. Peter Scherzero, who wrote Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and developed this, this program and this course, uh, says this about himself. He says, before, uh, before I became a Christian, I was a maniac. I didn't know how to feel, what to do with sadness or pain, how to respond in any given situation. And, and by definition, a maniac is just someone who, who can't make sense of the world around them, and so they just do crazy things. And then he says, and then I came to Christ. I came to Christ. But what happened was, and we look at the picture of this iceberg, he says what happened in his life, and so often in, in our lives, is his behavior changed. He came to Christ, and his behavior changed. What didn't change was the emotional component that was below the surface. It wasn't addressed. And so there wasn't the, the deep change. And he shares about how his behavior changed and so much so he was excited about what God was doing in his life and he became a pastor. And for years he was a pastor leading a church that was growing, but below the surface was emotionally immature and wasn't dealing with the deeper things in his life. Let me show you the circle has five components to it. This is you. This is me. Every one of us is social, intellectual, spiritual, physical, and emotional. All five components. You have all five. And all five of those need to be attended to and cared for. All five of those are areas that God wants to cause to thrive in your life. That there's not one area that God says, you know what, I don't care about that as much as the others. In fact, in, in the Western church, the emotional aspect is the one that's been disregarded the most. See, when you come to Jesus, Christ, Christians, good Christians, solid Christians aren't emotional Right, Because emotion is equated with being flighty or imbalanced or not stable. Good Christians don't, you know, they keep everything under control. And, and, and you only let people see the victories and the wins in your, your, uh, in your life. And you definitely don't show any weakness or struggle. God never paints that picture for us. He recognizes that we are all five components and that all five need care. So my core way of loving and your core way of loving and emotionally connecting to others really is reflected in how your family did or didn't do mature relating and loving. We've talked about that going back to go forward, looking to the past and understanding what the, the things are in your life that has shaped uh, how you relate emotionally and, and what love looks like in your life. We need to understand that this message, and in the, if you're reading the book, that this particular chapter in the book is the key to moving forward. We've learned a lot about uh, the, the, the theory behind it, we've done some practical things and talked about silence and solitude and, uh, and, and, and bringing healing to some of those places of our lives. But this is where we turn the corner. And without this, this step, without this morning, without this message, without this practical application, we would just per perpetually stay stuck. Those things would just remain below the surface. This is the link between unhealthy spirituality and healthy spirituality, moving from the one and into the other. Between spirituality that's marked by pre pretense and hypocrisy and a spirituality marked by realness and authenticity. Church, we can live in a place where our spirituality is fake. That our churches are filled with people who are faking it, hoping that one day they'll make it. And when the world labels Christians as hypocrites, they're not wrong. 
They're not wrong because so often we feel that ourselves. This is not who I really am. And if people knew who I really was, they wouldn't want to know me or associate with me. Definitely wouldn't want me to come to church. That's not the heart of God. We're supposed to be a people whose spirituality is marked with realness and authenticity. So this is about practically applying and walking out biblical principles in our lives so that actually results in life change and transformation. First thing I want to do, though, well, not the first thing, I've said a few things already. A couple of points I want to make is this, two myths. I want to address two myths, and they'll be up on the screen. The first is this. When I accepted Christ and he lives in me and started living in me or, or, or I, I received the fullness of the gift of salvation that he had for me, that at that point, growing into an emotionally mature adult is a natural thing. That it would just kind of happen. I've come to Jesus, I've surrendered my life, I've given my life to him, and, and now it's just, uh, just going to happen. It's just natural. I don't really have to do anything, right? If I plant a seed in the ground and I water it, it's just going to grow and, and it just does its thing. As a Christian, I just, you know, just going to do his thing. And we, we read passages like 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Amen. That's great, but it doesn't happen automatically, there's no magic wand. That walking with Jesus is hard work. It's hard work. You see, your position change, changes, and you understand, I'm not the same that I was before, but your heart and your mind have to catch up as well. Your position changes, but your heart and your mind your emotions need to catch up as well. You see, Israel, when they came out of Egypt, walked through this process. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God delivers them through the Red Sea, and it's like the second week, and they start grumbling and complaining. And what are they complaining? You know, back in Egypt, we had pots of meat. We had leeks and onions. We had, we had food to eat. Oh my gosh, you were a slave. Yeah, but we had emotional immaturity remembers things incorrectly. It leaves out stuff. And God says, you need to remember where you're coming from before you can move into your destiny. And as a result, because they struggled so much with this, he let them walk around the desert for 40 years. Because he couldn't lead them into the blessing of their future until they had dealt with the reality of where they had come from and broke those ties. Because every time something difficult came up, well, you know, back in Egypt, you know, Moses, you just let us out here to die. Transition had to be made, and it's same for us. And the second myth is this. Christians' ability to love those around them is qualitatively different than those outside the church. That Christians' ability to love those around them is qualitatively different than those outside the church. Let me put it in this way. That Christians love people better than non-Christians. And the reality is, it's not that way. It should be that way, but it's not. That it's not. To take it even deeper, we don't even love each other well. Man. Well, our church is the blessed church, and that church down the street, holy cow. <laughs> Sacred cow. <laughs> That's not God's heart for us. And how can we love? And, and, and so we, we just think that just by virtue of, oh, I'm a Christian, now I just love people well because God said that I had to love. It doesn't just happen. See, we have to understand for Christians, the divorce rate, issues in parenting, sexual immorality, greed, conflict, and anger, statistics 
paint a picture that says we're really no different to the rest of the world. And it's one thing for us to go, wow. Hmm. That's interesting. I'm going to process that with my intellectual component of my, my being, but my emotion's going to start, start, stay far away from that because it's actually going to require that I live differently. That's emotional immaturity. Our quality of love in general is not much better because underneath the surface and behind closed doors, we've not experienced the transformation that God has for us. I don't think anyone would debate that being a spiritually mature Christian means that you love well. The problem is that most people have learned have have not learned to practically and effectively apply the truths of the Bible in loving others. Let me say that again. We wouldn't disagree that that as a Christian you're supposed to love well, but when it comes to walking it out, we don't get it. And so we don't do it. A couple of quick examples. The Bible says, be quick to hear and slow to speak. How's that going for you? <laughs> oh, man, that one wrecks me daily. Speak the truth in love. Be angry, but do not sin. Yeah, that feeling that you have right now means that you're not there yet. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to say it, right? What you're feeling right now, that uh, means that there's work to do. It means that there is work to do. Who knows how to do all three of these things practically? Jesus does. I'm a work in progress. So how do you gauge where you are? How do you gauge where you are? How do you know kind of where you're at in the process to objectively say, where do I need to be improved and where do I need to do better? I have a little inventory for you. We're going to put this up on the screen. Um, if you want to take pictures of it, there's quite a few things you can do that. Um, here's some questions, some some ways that you can examine your own life, and there's really three areas, looking at yourself as an infant, a child, and an adult as far as your behavior goes. So first is this, as an infant. An infant has these qualities. Infant. An infant feels a need but can only cry. Right? An infant feels a need, but all they can do is cry. They can't express it. They can't, you know, baby doesn't say, listen, it's been a few hours since I last had a meal. They feel it, I'm hungry, I cry. An infant must wait for parents to figure it out. An infant becomes angry if parent is inattentive. And there is psychologically, uh, is the studies that have been done are phenomenal in this regard. Little babies and the, the responses that they have. An adult, as an emotional infant, treats others as objects to meet my needs. Acts like a tyrant and wins through intimidation. Is unable to empathize with others. All right, let's look at the, the child. A child can communicate but is still dependent on others. A child acts out feelings of pain, fear, and resentment. A child lacks the skill to openly discuss and negotiate getting needs met. So things just get kind of awkward, right? An adult, adult as an emotional child acts out resentment through distance, pouting, whining, clinging, lying, withholding, appeasing, and lying again. <laughs> That's not a mistake. An adult as an emotional child does not openly and honestly express needs. How about, still kind of under the child category, the adolescent. An adolescent rebels against parental authority. Now, that's not a prophetic word over the teenagers in our church. And, and I, I mean that. 
Um, I, as a youth pastor, people will be like, oh, you know those teenagers? And I'm like, yeah, and they're awesome, right? But, but it is the season in your life where you recognize that you have a voice. And quite often it can, if un, left unchecked, lead to a place, place where you're rebelling against parental authority. An adolescent defines self in a reaction, in reaction to others. Fears being treated as a child. Not a child anymore. An adolescent says, don't tell me what to do. An adult is an emotional adolescent. Cannot give without feeling controlled or resentful. I give, but I resent you because I had to give. An adult is an emotional adolescent has a capacity for mutual, their capacity for mutual concern is missing, and they're defensive and threatened by criticism. And then finally, the adult, an emotionally healthy adult is able to ask for what they need, want, or prefer clearly, directly, honestly, and respectfully. Desire, they have a desire for relationships to win, are able to listen with empathy, are willing to risk saying what is needed without attacking. Emotionally healthy adult respects others without having to change them. Able to resolve conflicts maturely and negotiate solutions and gives themselves and others room to make mistakes and not be perfect. There's a little inventory. Probably even just reading through, there might be some that just kind of struck a chord with you. It's healthy to look at these and go, where am I at? How am I really doing? How am I really doing in these areas? All right, let's look at the Good Samaritan. If you want that list, I can email it to you. We'll pop it maybe even on the website. Um, it's, uh, if you have the, uh, the Bible app, by the way, if you look it up on the events tab, I believe it's under the, uh, the e-bulletin this morning. Is it not on there? Okay. I'll add it. I'll add it in there, and it'll be on, on that. Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. Jesus shares this parable in response to a question he receives. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Fair question. That is a good question. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, but he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, but passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care. Uh, of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. This story, as Jesus told it, this parable, would not have sat well with, the, with his audience. We read some of these parables and some of these stories and go, oh, what a nice story. 
and we have our kids acted out, which is great, but we don't understand that culturally what Jesus was saying was kind of a poke in the eye. It was an insult to those that he was listening to. So we have this lawyer who, by the way, wasn't just, he wasn't an attorney as we understand it, and though he understood legal matters, see, because the law for them was wrapped up in the law of God. It was in the penal code. It was the law of God, and he was a lawyer, and he was an expert in the law, a religious scholar. So when he asks Jesus this question, he knows the answer to the question. How do you read it? And he answers, I, I know the answer. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. But he's got this way about him where he can identify the right answers. But he's missing something. And Jesus knows it. In fact, he reveals it himself when he says this, desiring to justify himself. Desiring to justify himself is what Luke writes. Why did he have to justify himself? Because he knew that God said in order to be saved, love God and love people. He had to justify himself because he knew he wasn't there. And he wanted Jesus to make him feel better about himself. Jesus doesn't just call him out and say, no, you're way off base. I know your heart. He tells him, the story. He can identify and say the right answers, but his heart isn't in the right place. To understand the parable, Jericho and Jerusalem are about 18 miles apart from each other, and in order to go from one to the other, it goes through a desert area, a rocky area, and so it would have been the perfect place. Remember, this is a parable. It, it wasn't a, a true story, but Jesus is appealing to something they would have known, right? It would be equivalent to us saying, hey, if you drove through that really bad part of town, this is where probably you would get mugged or carjacked or something. Tells this story about this man getting jumped by robbers and, and accosted and beaten up and and, and left for dead on the road. And, and then he says that there's two people that come by, the priest and the Levite, two people who served in the temple, the priest making the offerings and standing in the place of, of, of people before the Lord. The Levites who were charged with the, the operation of the temple, they were the ones that, that, that prepared the sacrifice, that prepared uh, the, the team, that be, rather prepared the, the house of the Lord for worship. Um, they were the Levites. In the same way that we would even set up and tear down every Sunday. It's a Levitical tradition that we would prepare a place for the Lord. But, but, but the picture here is that they were close to the church. They were close to God in the respect that, that they were involved with work at the temple. They would have known the word of God. They would have known the law. Their, their whole life was given to loving and serving God. And yet when they come across the man, they see him and not only do nothing, but walk away, walk past him on the other side of the road. I want to put as much distance between myself and that person neither in stops to investigate the crisis or see if they can help out. Um, they probably had a lot on their minds. They were distracted or, uh, you know, hey, I've got, I've got a meeting I've got to be at and I've got to, you know, for the, the priests, they, they served, they took turns serving and say so they would serve for a month in, in, in the temple. And so the priest was probably going home and hadn't seen his family. So he's, he's like, hey, I just want to, I just want to get home. I don't want to be bothered by this. I don't want to be bothered by what's going on. But the reality is they, they were disconnected. Their spirituality was disconnected from loving people. Even though God had said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Even though they knew the law, they were disconnected in their spirituality because it didn't translate to a practical expression. It's been said that busyness is the greatest enemy of spirituality. If I had time, I would stop and help. If I had time, I would sit down and have a cup of, cup of coffee with you and listen to what was going on in your life. If I had time, I would, I would give of myself to serve and help people. But I'm just busy. 
thousands of possible reasons why we wouldn't, couldn't, shouldn't. But Jesus identifies what is the most important aspect of what was missing. Their hearts were the problem, not their minds. Their hearts were the problem because they see the issue and there's no compassion. Their hearts are not soft. And the lack of a soft heart means that there's no compassion flowing, that there is no compassion. There is no compassion that wells up inside of you or, or these, these individuals to say, how can I help? By comparison, the Samaritan comes by, sees, and it says that he had compassion. He, he takes pity. This word compassion is a key word used by Jesus, not just in this instance, but throughout Scripture. It's the Greek word, it's blanchnizomai, or splanchnizomai. It's a great word. Splanchnizomai. It means that, that, that you're moved deeply and internally. There's nothing surface about splanchnizomai. Nothing surface about it. It means that, that, that your, your very core, your guts, are moved. Compassion starts in the deep places. I mean, your, your intestines. And it moves from there and proceeds to affect your whole body. Compassion so intense and vivid that you feel it in your guts. This man, the Samaritan, felt compassion. He had compassion on this man that had been beaten. Now, we've got to remember that the Jews and the Samaritans had nothing to do with each other. They despised each other. They were viewed as second class, inferior. They were, they were destined for destruction. They had different political views, different religious views. And in fact, there was a parable or a proverb in the Jewish community that said that he who eats the bread of Samaritans is like one who eats the flesh of swine, which was a huge insult. They hated each other. So for, for Jesus to say, hey, the Samaritan, just that the name would have caused the crowd to go, oh, What? A Samaritan comes by and he sees this man and he has compassion. Think of someone maybe in your life that you despise. Someone who you, thinks differently to you or has offended or hurt you. Has different political views. Not that that would ever happen in our country. <laughs> different morals different religious beliefs. To really understand and appreciate what Jesus is saying, you think about that person and how you would feel. Jesus was saying, that person, not you, that person comes by, takes him in, takes him to the inn, gives him medical care, spends money on him, and says, I'll actually come back and pay extra if I need to. Not only that, remember, he's on this road where these guys had, these robbers had robbed this man, which means that they're still around. Exposes himself to danger in order to help. Doesn't make any excuses. Jesus ends the parable this way. Who was his neighbor? The lawyer's trapped. He has to say, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus' response is the response he has for us. Go and do likewise. The emphasis is on actually doing something. See, he says it in the present tense. Do constant, constantly, or in a sense it's this way, a lifetime of doing. Not a moment of doing, but a life that is lived in such a way that you're ready for action and ready to go and do Likewise, see, Jesus starts with the heart of someone who has received mercy. And the only way that we can make sense of this text and allow it to sink deeply into our own emotional baggage and our emotional damage and our emotional disconnect is this. We have to realize that we're the ones on the side of the road. We're the ones that have been accosted and beat up and have stuff 
robbed and stolen from us and left for dead. John 10.10 says that the enemy seeks to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus has come that you would have life and have it to the fullest. Have life abundantly that you would thrive. You are the one on the side of the road. And Jesus is the good Samaritan. The one who came and expressed and, and gave mercy to you. Had compassion on you. Jesus came because he had splonknizomine for you. That he was moved to the very core of who he was for you. And that you have been on a receiving end where not for him, you would be lying in a ditch dying. And so before we can look at this passage and say, hey, we just, I need to go out and I just need to go love a few people. Right? The goal isn't to get in your car and drive down the road and find the first homeless person you can find. The, the, the really what Jesus is saying, remember that you are on the receiving end first. You were naked, shamed, dying, bleeding. Jesus saw you and had compassion. He left heaven. He traveled. He went out of his comfort zone and came and, 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 and came to this world where he was stripped, killed, attacked, beaten, crucified. He didn't give oil or money or his donkey, but he gave himself. And it's only if you fully embrace that in your life beyond a head knowledge. Oh, yes, Jesus died for my sin. Hallelujah. But if the emotional component of who you are below the surface comes to terms with the fact that Jesus died for your emotional hurt and baggage and pain and wants to bring wholeness. Church, it's the only thing that will change you. It's the only thing. Otherwise, you run the risk of saying, I'm okay. I'm good. Thank you very much. And you continue just surviving. See, the Good Samaritan loves maturely. He's an emotionally healthy adult. And yes, he's fictional, but Jesus paints a great picture. He's an emotionally healthy adult who sees beyond the culture, who sees beyond the religion, who sees beyond the whatever and is moved to help. But... On the other side of it, he actually sets boundaries and limits as well. See, an emotionally healthy person, in this case, he doesn't bring the victim back to his home, and he doesn't obligate himself financially for the rest of his life. He doesn't try to do everything and be everything for the man. And he continues his journey. See, because we can be at the other end where emotionally healthy means that I am now your savior, not Jesus. And that's not healthy either. You see how this affects every part of our walk with the Lord. Okay, two points of application. This is the first. Be aware of your family of origin's capability for emotional connection. Be aware of your family of origin's capability for emotional connection. We spend a lot of money on our kids. Food, clothing, education, sports. We invest into their lives, but how much do we invest into their emotional health? Quite often, it's not only not invested in, it's completely ignored, usually because we're struggling ourselves because of the families that we grew up in. Your ability to love well is connected to how emotionally secure the environment you grew up in was. Because it's all you know. It's all you know. We talked about that a few weeks ago, going back to go forward, looking at your history, where, what was my home like, what, how were things dealt with in, in my home. Can you recall being comforted as a child after a time of emotional distress. Can you remember what it was like in your home after walking through something that emotionally was difficult or traumatic? What, what, what did comfort look like in your home? That will 
give you a huge clue into how you give comfort and compassion. See, the goal here is not to find fault. The goal is to gain an honest picture of might have, what might have gone wrong in, in your early years and in my early years so that you can begin the journey to growth and maturity. See, you, you either experienced comfort from your parents or you didn't. In either way, that had a huge impact on your life. So it's important to look at this. It's important to go back so you can go forward. What were you taught? When, when I read through that list, where you fall in that list tells you a little bit about where you've come from. So the result is that some of us hide feelings and avoid vulnerability. Because I don't want to go there because it just takes me right back to that moment. And that limbic part of your brain that doesn't forget. And that's not an opinion, that's fact. The limbic part of your brain where trauma, the trauma center of your brain doesn't forget. Doesn't matter how much time has gone by or how much positive confession there's been. Unless you get to a place where you can start introducing health and start tearing down those walls, it's just going to keep popping up. But Jesus wants to bring health. He wants to change the imprint. He wants to conform us to the image of Jesus, not so that you can just act like Jesus and be like robot Jesus, so that you can be emotionally mature like Jesus. When, when God says that he wants to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ, he's saying, I want to restore you to Imago Dei, to the image of God, where emotionally, intellectually, physically, relationally, I missed one, spiritually, thank you, <laughs> physically, all of those things, that there's, there's perfect union and balance in, that, in those areas as it is for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Ask yourself, did you learn to trust? Did you learn to respect others and take turns? Did your parents, your caregivers, understand your behavior? Were your feelings allowed? Were you allowed to be the child? So many kids in our culture, and, and, and for really for a, a while now, Kids that have to become adults because parents are acting like children and have to take responsibility in a season where they just don't get to be a kid and their childhood is robbed from them. Did you learn independence and dependence in a healthy way? When you have no memories of comfort or parent and our parenting, we received was less than ideal damage imprints are evident. Why is, is this just meant to be a bummer? I'm not trying to bum you out. But you can't grow into an emotionally healthy, an emotionally mature adult until you deal with some of these things. And remember I said that, that becoming a Christian doesn't mean that this just all naturally happens. It's the hard work of discipleship. And discipleship in your life is not my job, it's your job. Can I say that again for me? No. The hard work of discipleship in your life is not my job. For years I thought as a pastor, I have to just make sure I'm discipling everyone. And people would go to pastor's conference, so who are you discipling right now? Now listen, discipleship is important, but you've got to want it for yourself. Jesus says, you take up your cross and follow him. I'm not going to carry your cross. I got my own. I want to be an encouragement in your life. I want to speak truth into your life. But at the end of the day, discipleship is hard work. And it means that we need to look back and deal with the things in our lives so that we can walk into maturity. Second is this. Take practical steps of discipleship to grow into an emotionally mature adult. 
This is not theoretical. This is practical. There are things that you need to do. And I'm speaking to everyone in this room. There is not one of us that gets off without having to do something. You might be the healthiest person in this room emotionally. You still have work to do. Because we're never done. See, don't be deceived. Growing into an emotionally mature adult can be terrifying. It can be terrifying. I don't want to talk about those things. I don't want to look at those things. I don't want to think about those things. I don't want to go there. But becoming a Christian doesn't automatically make you mature. But it does give you the courage, the power, and the grace to do so. It doesn't just happen automatically, but God gives you what you need to make it happen. Coming up to this altar and getting on your knees and receiving from Jesus. Stepping out of your comfort zone and saying, I don't care what people think. Let them think what they're going to think. I just need Jesus right now. That's an emotionally healthy and mature thing to do. He gives you the courage, the power, and the grace. See, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the Holy Spirit in you, empowering you to go here, to do this, to move from immaturity into maturity. Enormous power. Church, enormous power. Power overflowing. See, the grace of Jesus Christ, when he saw you and had compassion on you and extended grace, his grace extended to you. It says that you can take risks and you can do things differently than you've done before because he's got you. He's there for you. I hope you're saying something like this. I can't, this is impossible to do. Right? Oh yeah, pa preach it, pastor. I got this. No, you don't. The, the, the best we can hope for is, okay, I think, I think, yeah, I think I've got some work to do. Don't be deceived. Don't let the enemy rob that of you. Commit and say, Lord, this is hard. This is impossible. I'm scared out of my mind, but I want to go here. I want to go here with you. I want to do this. See, because man says it's impossible, but the Bible says with God, all things are possible. It's slow. It's like training for a marathon. You don't start the week before. Right? It's slow. It's a process. And you go through the work of the process. The marathon comment touched home for a few people. So what do you do? What do you do? We commit to the spiritual disciplines. You start walking those things out. Get into a thrive group. What's a thrive group? Well, they used to be known as life groups. But here in a couple of weeks, we're going to start up thrive groups. You're going to hear about uh, those groups taking place around the community and in people's homes. And it's a place, right, because this, this venue is tough. I'm the one talking. You're the one listening. And so we're not having dialogue Thrive groups give you a place where you can take what you're learning on Sunday and sit with, with friends, with fellow believers, people who are in the same process that you are and say, hey, what, what's God speaking to you? And grow with each other. Get into a Thrive group. Join or start a journaling group. We have a few groups that meet during the week to, to just do our life journal and hear from the Lord and we share with each other. But do your journaling. Get into the word with someone and share. I get so much of, out of hearing what God is speaking to other people. It's such an encouragement. We're going to offer the EHS course again. Next time it comes around, take it. Go through it. My goal is that everyone in our church would go through this course. Some of, some of who are going through it right now have said, I'm, next time we do it, I'm doing it again. I just felt like I just kind of scratched the surface. I want to do this again. God will speak again. We're going to have marriage classes, parenting classes, classes about finances. Listen to me. If you need counseling, I want to help you get the counseling that you need. Really? Did, did the pastor just say that? Yes. 
Because for some of you, the hurt and the pain is so deep that you need someone to help you walk through the process of healing. And that's okay. And if you know that that's you, come talk to me and I'll get you in contact with someone who can help you. But take the steps. As a pastor, my desire, my heart for our church is this, that we would be an emotionally mature church, not a perfect church. An emotionally mature church where people know the minute they walk through that door, this is a safe place because these are real people, not fake, not putting on a show, real people, which means I can be real. And I can experience the love of God in a real way. Why? So that God will bring about transformation here in our, in our city to the ends of the earth. Let's stand together as the worship team comes forward. Again, this is a message that you could leave today and just go... Wow, that was, that was good. Maybe, you, maybe that wasn't so good. That's okay as well. Man, that really should have spoken to someone else. Or maybe you're thinking about the person I should have spoken to. Make it personal. Take some time this week and, and ask the Lord, where do you need to grow? What are some areas in your life that need to be healed, ministered to? Restored. What are some imprints that are lingering in, in your life that need to be broken? And start doing the hard work of discipleship. If you need to talk to someone, I'm available. I'd love to have a conversation with you. We have others who would love to sit with you and just grab a cup of coffee. If you need to get real with someone, maybe, maybe you've not had a real conversation in a while and you need to have a real conversation, make it happen. And let's believe that God is going to do something amazing in every one of us. When I talk about Thrive Church... I get excited, not because of what it could be one day. Listen to me. I know God's going to do mighty things, but it starts with the people in this room right now. I get excited about Thrive because when I look at every one of you, my prayer and my desire for you is that you would thrive. That you would thrive. So, Father, help us to grow into emotional maturity. And to be emotionally mature adults, healthy, balanced, aware of who we are and where we've come from, our strengths and our weaknesses, and everything in between. And I pray that this would be a place, that this would be a church, a sanctuary, where we can be real, where we can grow, where we can deal with our stuff in a healthy way. Help us, Lord, to have compassion, recognizing that we've been recipients of compassion. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to...